Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and they called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Community's downtown campus. And I'm sure you've noticed the most popular headlines in any major newspaper or the most trending posts on most social media or even really your conversations that happen around the office or in between classes at school revolve around the latest atrocity that's happened somewhere in the world, right? When I was driving back here to Kansas City on Wednesday, December 2nd, I remember my heart being absolutely broken over hearing another situation, this time in San Bernardino, California, of bloodshed. And, and maybe, maybe you're tired of hearing of more and more news stories like this. Well, very much on the next day in the New York Daily News, there was this headline. It was very shocking, right? In bold white letters, God isn't fixing this. God isn't fixing this. Now, to be clear, this article had a political agenda highlighting and attacking politicians whom they say were giving meaningless platitudes without thoughtful action. But I think underlying that accusation is an even deeper question. A question that sounds a little bit more like, God, do you even know what's happening anymore around here? And if you've seen one too many or heard of one too many of episodes like the one in San Bernardino, maybe you're even asking the question, can a good God actually exist if he's let this happen? Not once, not twice, but again and again and again. And you begin to sing Christmas songs through a different lens. Do you hear what I hear, God? If you've never asked that question, Live a little bit longer and you will. When evil stares you in the face, when suffering seems to define your reality and heartbreak seems to be all that you feel. The reason I was driving home on Wednesday, December 2nd, instead of earlier in the week as my family had planned is because I was coming back from a funeral of a family friend who was much like a brother to me. He passed away unexpectedly at age 32. He had a heart condition, 
But nobody was anticipating that he would die then. No one was expecting him to go this soon, even the day before he was at the doctor's in London. And they said, go home. We'll figure this out. We've got weeks to plan. And he dies in his sleep the very next day. And then his parents have to go and gather his body and bring him back to Columbus, Ohio. With so much death, I get it. Sometimes it doesn't feel like God's fixing a whole lot. As a Christian, I think the best response, maybe even the only response we have, starts somewhere around a young teenage girl got pregnant out of wedlock some 2,000 years ago in Roman-occupied Palestine. That's how it starts. The Christmas story, the story we just heard read for us is, is the sign, is the symbol, is the explanation of how God literally stepped into this world to start fixing it. And for some, that sounds really stupid. For others, that sounds really cliche for this time of year. But no matter where you are, don't dismiss it. And this morning, I want to invite all of us to re-examine, to reevaluate, to remember the Christmas story. Because if God isn't doing anything, no matter how many freedoms we liberate, no matter how many regulations we enforce, we will still be a people without hope if God isn't doing anything. And so this morning, I want us to look at the Christmas story afresh, at what God has done, what he is doing, and I want to plead with us to not dismiss it. And before we do that, let me pray ever so quickly. Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we're thankful for the ways in which you have spoken throughout your prophets, your preachers, your teachers, and you've recorded it and gathered it and collected it in your word. May we have ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of the gospel and how you're working even now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 beginning in verse 18, and I want you to listen to how Matthew sets the scene here. Matthew was a former tax collector. In other words, he was a numbers cruncher. And I love just how direct he is right when he starts off in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. <laughs> He's like, no bones about it. I'm not going to try to be implicit. Okay, this is what happened. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Okay, so right off the bat, when we come to this passage with a 21st century modern lens, it can feel like Matthew started writing his gospel account holding grandpa's special eggnog. Okay, here's what I mean. <clears throat> One of the biggest hangups with God's rescue is that it doesn't always make sense. And if that's you this morning, I want you to know you're in really good company because it didn't make a whole lot of sense to the people who experienced it for the first time either. It certainly didn't make a whole lot of sense to Joseph. So for starters, Matthew points out Mary, Jesus's mom. He makes it explicit. This is Jesus's mom and she's betrothed to this guy, Joseph which explicitly dad is left out. The, the title dad is left out. Instead, Mary is said to have been 
impregnated now from the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in a minute, okay? Then you've got this whole thing that although Mary and Joseph aren't married, Joseph feels the need to divorce her as soon as he found out that Mary was preggers, okay? So what's going on here? To really grasp the weight of this scenario, we need to walk for a bit in Joseph's sandals. So I want you to imagine with me, you're a Jewish carpenter in a small town. You've got a pretty simple life, but you know what? You're fine with that. One of the things you've always wanted, though, is a family, to have someone to love, to spend the rest of your life with a companion, and potentially, if God so wills, some children. As you finish maybe Zedekiah's new table, the guy who lives on the end of the street, you can almost hear and feel the kids, your kids, running around your feet, giggling, messing up Zedekiah's table, and you're okay with it because the joy of having children around you. As for the shop, you've got pretty steady work. It's doing well enough to provide for this family someday, and that someday is really any day now. In just a few short months, your betrothed, Mary, will be all yours, and you will be all hers. Being engaged in this culture was a legally and binding endeavor. There was a prenuptial agreement that was made before witnesses where you promised your faithfulness to each other. But there's still the day, the glorious wedding day, when you can finally give all of yourself to the other. You see, in a traditional culture, this is everything you've been waiting for, everything you've been dreaming about. The questions concerning culture or career or college, those were all answered at your birth. And you're okay with that. You grew up in dad's carpentry shop, and you're excited about your sons doing the same, carrying on the family business it was all about family. With every cut of the saw or the bang of the hammer, you can hear the refrain of the town, of, of the culture saying, when are you going to settle down, Joseph? When are you going to settle down, Joseph? And you're this close, this close. Every bit of the cultural tide is pulling you in this direction. You're getting the house ready. You're making plans for the wedding. You can't wait. And honestly, your family can't wait. You don't know how many times your mom has been hinting about grandchildren every time the neighbor boys run in front of the house. <clears throat> you know, Rachel just had her sixth grandchild. Have you, have you ever got to know Bernard, her son? He's a really thoughtful guy. And you could live without that nagging, you know, time and again. And honestly, the whole town's gearing up for this wedding because there's only three things that happen in this small town. Births, deaths, and weddings. <laughs> and weddings almost always guarantee a party. It'll be the event of the year. And honestly, you're not sure who's more excited about this wedding, whether you and Mary or the town. Where is Mary? Well, she's been at her cousin Elizabeth's house for the past three months. She left rather suddenly, but it didn't shock you because they're really close. And Elizabeth is about to have her own child. And she needed some help around the house getting things ready for the baby. But then the day comes when Mary comes back into town. You're maybe working in your shop and you've got about an hour left on Zedekiah's table. And maybe, just maybe, one of your friends comes in and they say, hey, did you know Mary came back into town? You should go see her. And he's like, well, I've got to finish up the table. It's about an hour and then I'm going to spend the rest of the day with Mary. And he grabs your hand and he looks you in the eyes and he says, go now. Joseph, go now. 
His tone, it makes you sick to your stomach. So you drop your tools, you make your way over to Mary's house. The family won't look you in the eye. The silence is deafening. You finally go to a back room where Mary is. Her back's turned to you and slowly she turns around. She tries to say something, anything, but you can't hear any of it because you realize she's starting to show. Right then, your whole world falls apart. All of your dreams, all of your hopes, gone. You run out of Mary's house. You go to your own house. You yell at everybody to get out. You need time. And you begin to weep because now you realize you have to make a decision you never were anticipating having to make. You see, in a small town, there's only two sides to this story that are going to make their way out. The celebration gone scandal will become the biggest topic of conversation this town has seen for a while. You can either divorce her and everyone will know that Mary has cheated on you. Or you can still marry her and everyone in town will think you've cheated on God. That you've broken your vows and you'd slept with Mary before you were married. Those are your options. But you know, this isn't really a choice, is it? Because it's not just your future and your reputation at stake here. Everyone in your family, your brothers and sisters, when they go to the marketplace will now be the laughing stock. Your family business, which is built on trust and character, will now be hurt because of this potential union. If you marry this girl, Mary, and give any hint that you've adulterated with her. Slowly, while you're in your house, day turns to night, and it feels like an eternity. And your heart's still full of compassion for Mary. You, you love Mary. So you resolve to quietly divorce her and so not make an extra spectacle of the whole scene. That's the least you can do. But while you're weeping and you're praying, God, fix this. You, you finally doze off. And an angel comes to you in a dream. Now, as soon as you see the angel, all of these, all this imagery of the Hebrew scriptures that you'd heard in the synagogue growing up come back to you. Whenever God's messengers come, that means God's about to sue, do something quite magnificent. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You're almost stunned, and you can't move. And so the angel keeps talking. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. When you wake up, you, you feel like you have more questions than answers. But there's one thing you do know. You will marry your betrothed. No matter the shame and the difficulty ahead, the hardship of raising a son who is now legally under your purview, but not biologically yours, you have to marry this girl. You get to marry this girl. Some months later in a town of your family lineage, because Caesar orchestrated attacks, you find yourself in Bethlehem, and you meet and you hold Emmanuel for the very first time screaming as every newborn does when he takes his first breath of cold air. 
And then you think about what the angel told you. You're holding Jesus. And you once again pray, God rescue. Because that's what his name means. This is God's rescue plan. No one was anticipating this. Every time I read this story, I really think to myself, God, this is, this is what you had in store. This is the way you had it planned all along. Really? And yet it's exactly here we begin to see how God is going to fix this world, how God seeks to be engaged in our lives, and how he's continuing to work even today. And the first thing we learn in God's rescue in the Christmas story is that God's rescue, it's always bigger than we think it is. God's rescue is always bigger than we think it is. You know, I grew up in a single-parent home, and I used to hear my mom on a regular basis as she was always over her Bible. I would come home, and she'd be crying over her Bible, or she'd be praying over her Bible, or she'd be praying for us next to her Bible. And she would say, and this wasn't original to her, that, that much of life with its heartache, its pain, its trauma can feel like you're looking at the back of a tapestry with its tangled and intertwined string that almost seems senseless in the way it's organized. And that's why we give up. This is why we lose hope. But she never hesitated to remind me that life isn't random, that God does have a plan for us, that he is working. And every once in a while, he flips over that tapestry and we begin to see how he brings those threads together to orchestrate these beautiful patterns. And this is God's salvation plan for all people, the patterns we see across the pages of Scripture. It's always bigger than we think it is. And look, Joseph isn't any different from us here. He's got his problems, right? He thinks that his biggest problem is the loss of his reputation, maybe the obliteration of what he thought was going to be the perfect marriage. And that's normal. The biggest problems in your and my life are my problems, right? <laughs> and my problems tend to consume me. Your problems tend to consume you. And maybe even this morning as we're singing songs, as you're throwing back another cup of coffee, as you're sitting in this sermon, your problems are still consuming you. A marriage that's wrestling to survive. Maybe just maybe in your singleness or even within your marriage, this overwhelming loneliness in the season of generosity, when people are giving gifts, you feel to a greater degree your financial stress. Maybe, just maybe, you're discontent with work or you don't have work. When everything is going on with these celebrations around Christmas, you're terrified that an old addiction will rear its ugly head. Whatever is our problems, they tend to consume us. And then there's the problems of the world. God, will you end sex slavery? God, will you abolish racism? And will you get rid of genocide? Will you end injustice? You know, in the first century, every Jewish person, when they prayed for deliverance, their primary concept of the Messiah, the Christ, was one who would now overthrow the oppressive occupation of the Roman Empire in Palestine. That was the Messiah they were looking for. And we can join with those who've gone before us in praying prayers, God, fix this. God, fix this broken world. God, fix me. And there's nothing wrong with those prayers, 
But often God will respond first and foremost in the same vein he did on Christmas. His name will be Jesus because he will save your marriage. Because he will save your job. Because he'll save your reputation. Not first and foremost. What we have to see first and foremost, his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The rescue must be bigger than we think it is, oftentimes than I think it is, because we often underestimate how big the problem is. It's not without coincidence that every time the virgin birth is spoken of, there's also we see the hint that Jesus has come to save us from our sins. Have you ever thought about how if God can give life and create human life within the womb of a virgin, how there's nothing that can really stop him? If he can do that, couldn't he end poverty? Couldn't he bring you that perfect soulmate? Couldn't he double your income yesterday? Couldn't he heal all sickness? And if he hasn't, who has the problem wrong? Is that God or is that us? I feel like God's taking us out to coffee and he's having a DTR. Defining the relationship and sitting at one end of the table and saying, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> you see, the real problem isn't our problems. Not first and foremost. It's not that those are unimportant, but the real problem is my sin. Not my hiccups, not my accidents, but my sin. And we, we don't often talk about this in our wider culture. Because oftentimes we're afraid of the culpability that that then places on us. Or maybe even the looming oughtness that's a part of a moral framework of a moral universe. But I think we do ourselves a disservice when we cut this language out of our everyday conversation and the way we see the world. You see, this rich moral vocabulary invites us now to see the fullness of life and not just a certain segment of our life. And this is why the biblical storyline time and again has sin at the core of the redemptive story as to what God's doing and how he's working in the world. You see, in the beginning, there were no problems, right? Only promise with Adam and Eve. The initial and representative human beings, when they walked with God and they were with God and they fully trusted God, but then sin entered the world and it obliterated this trust. And ever since then, we've been trusting a different story, a lie, that God's out to get us, not to rescue us, that God's out to catch us rather than redeem us. And so we run from him rather than to him. And this is why God had to tell Joseph right from the get-go, hey, hey, Joe, this isn't your son. This is my son. Because if he's your son, he could never redeem anyone from their sins. Because you, alongside of every human being, is actually a part of the problem. We're broken. We're flawed. The virgin birth is crucial to our understanding of what Christ has come to do. Look, this isn't a fairy tale or some legend that's been concocted by a primitive ancient community. You know, Joseph, he didn't have the scientific method, but he still knew where babies came from, okay? 
He still understood the natural process. It doesn't make natural sense to us today, but it didn't make natural sense back then either. And we need a rescuer to defeat our sin, who's above our sin, who is without sin, to create a new humanity. And that can't come from Joseph. That's got to come from God himself. You know, this sin problem, it's got to be pretty outrageous if the solution involves God becoming human. That's got to be a pretty big deal. Think about putting the Empire State Building into a doghouse. A blue whale inside of an ant. <laughs> this is an outrageous claim that has really become a scandal to Christianity across the globe to every other religious framework. As what Paul says in his letter to the church in Colossae, that the fullness of the deity dwelt in Christ bodily. In the embryonic beginnings of Jesus, floating around in amniotic fluid for nine months, then being born, killable, vulnerable, living a fully human life, then dying an innocent death on the cross, taking our penalty that we deserved so that God might be just and punishing sin and injustice and also the justifier by providing a way of forgiveness and reconciliation in the cross of Christ. God's rescue is much bigger than we often think. Often because we undermine how severe the problem is. And what Christmas reminds us of is the ravages of sin and the great lengths of which God will go to redeem us. And maybe you're thinking this is crazy. Maybe you're thinking I'm crazy. I think sometimes I'm a little crazy, so I get it. Maybe you're thinking this story is a bit crazy and you don't need this kind of rescue. Well, let me ask you then a different question. How's your own rescue going? How's your own rescue going? Because if it's not this, what's your rescue plan? Well, once I get this job, once I get this promotion, once I get enough money in the bank, once I pay off my debt, once I find my soulmate, once I graduate, then I'll be full, then I'll be whole, then I'll be happy, then I can rest. What's your rescue plan? Maybe you continue to struggle with the same things over and over again. You know, we're getting up to that point. I don't even want to mention New Year's resolutions. <laughs> I know my own life. I know my failures. But have you ever stopped and honestly assessed why you do what you do? The decisions you make, the script you're seeking to live into? Don't be so blind as to think you're so authentically figuring this out all by yourself. There are cultural influences that we're buying into. Where is that script written? And is that a reliable source? Why are we so quick to scoff at the Christmas story when we're unwilling to put ourselves underneath the microscope? You know, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt way too often. And then when we come to the Christmas story, we put it under this microscope with a posture of fairy tale until proven fact. And I don't know about you, but I just don't trust myself well enough to come with an honest assessment of this story. I know my biases. I know if this is true, that it's going to demand something of my life, and that terrifies me. I know that if this is true, then it's going to reveal some blind spots that I'd rather not see. Look, before I married Allie, I used to think, 
that you didn't have to wash your hands after every time you went to the restroom. I know, okay, and I'm different now, so don't worry. <clears throat> Most of you have shaken my hand at one point or another. But we all have these areas of willful ignorance that are just ridiculous. If we're honest enough to admit it, right? The question is, are you willing to mature and grow up? Because that's what maturing and growing up means. Listening, listening, assessing, allowing community to speak into your life when you don't want to hear what they have to say, and then learning to live in better ways, following a better person. You know, look, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while now, okay? And the Christmas story has become, well, the, you know, the good old Christmas story. And the virgin birth... It makes you shrug your shoulders way more often than it ever brings you to your knees. God become human is an interesting theological component to understanding Scripture, but not something that instantly drives you to worship and awe of who God is. Or maybe, just maybe, you're here because a friend invited you this morning. Or you figured, ah, it's Christmas, why not? I'll give church another try. <laughs> Have you really allowed the claims of Christmas and God's rescue plan to be presented and have you assessed it honestly? Because it's so much better than we think it is. God's rescue, it's so much better than we think it is, so much better than I often remember. And this all comes to a head when the angel says that Jesus will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel. This is a title. And what does this title mean? First, FYI, um, I'm going to give you a quick lesson on linguistics, okay, ever so briefly. Don't check out as soon as you hear that word. Sorry, I shouldn't have even said it. Okay, so translation is like, for example, in Greek, the word love is agape. When you translate it, you capture the idea, but it looks and sounds different in terms of the letters that make up the word, okay? Transliteration is that the word when it comes over to a different language, sounds the same and carries the same meaning, okay? So when you come to the word Emmanuel, there's probably been a point or two where you've looked at your Christmas carol book, or sang, or looking in scripture, and sometimes it begins with an I, and sometimes it begins with an E, and you're like, does somebody have spell check around here? Like, what, how do you actually spell this? Well, just for your information, actually, Emmanuel with an I is the transliterated Hebrew, Emmanuel with an E is the transliterated Greek. They both mean the same thing, but they just come from different languages in their transliteration. So now, just a helpful little factoid to navigate the Christmas season and to show off how smart you are at the next Christmas party. You're welcome. Okay, so <clears throat> back to our passage. Back to our passage. I find that stuff fascinating. I'm sorry, you've got a nerd for a pastor. so And for some reason, I think other people find it interesting. But when you come back to our passage, we find that the angel quotes here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, this old promise from God that's found in Isaiah chapter 7. Its initial hearing was to King Ahaz, the king of Judah at the time. And he's terrified because he's surrounded by his enemies and they're under siege. And out of fear, he doesn't pursue or inquire about God's rescue plan. And honestly, doesn't even receive God's rescue plan at first. So God sends his spokesman, Isaiah, his prophet, to speak to Ahaz. And this is what he says. There's a sign to help you trust that my rescue plan is better. All right? There's going to be a son that's born of a young woman. 
And in the Hebrew, that, that can capture more broadly young women. But when Matthew brings over the text, there is a lexical range in which virgin can be the nuance. And that's what Matthew's highlighting here in our passage. But this young boy, when he's born, before he knows the difference between right and wrong, I will have defeated all of Judah's enemies. And that will be a sign to you that I'm fighting for you, that I'm with you. Because that's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Now, when we're back in Isaiah 7, this prophecy is in an embryonic stage. It does have present-day fulfillment for Ahaz, but it doesn't reach its full term until Jesus himself is born. Because as Isaiah begins and continues to wax eloquently about this young son that is born in chapter 7 of Isaiah, and then chapter 8, and then he gets to chapter 9, and he describes this son with such grandeur that it can't be the same child of the time of Ahaz. He says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, remember this, Joseph, son of David, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Isaiah, he's not speaking anymore about any merely human king. No king in Judah's history, no candidate that runs for president will ever be able to fit this bill. This is one who is fully human and fully God. Jesus Christ, who comes to exercise perfect justice and righteous judgments forever. There will be no end. And what's so glorious about this is that although in Isaiah, that young boy, when he was born around Ahaz's time, was meant to be a sign that God was with him, here, in the birth of Jesus, this wasn't a mere sign. Jesus is God with us. God become flesh, Emmanuel. And this was always his plan, as Paul says in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world. You see, if our deepest problem is sin, then God's solution is God chasing after us. God come to us, God with us. And this is who the angel proclaims Jesus to be. This is who Jesus himself proclaims himself to be. This is who Matthew records him to be. And this is who Joseph welcomes him to be. Well, we welcome him to be who he is. Don't miss this rescue. God is fixing this. He is in his own timing and in his own way. Bring your failures. Bring your hurts, your plans and in return, he'll give you something bigger and better, himself, no matter what the circumstances may portray. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. The gospel is the good news from God about Jesus Christ and his life, his death, his resurrection. 
that demands repentance and promises forgiveness and new life. God, may we embrace what the true and the root problem is that we might embrace the way in which you are bringing about your solution and restoration. The implications touch every square inch of our lives to be sure, but may we never forget at the core the problem behind all of our problems is our sin and may we come humbly and repentant before you. Thank you for Jesus the mind-blowing ways in which you've entered into this world. Holy Spirit, convict us in the areas of our blindness and in our sin that the fruits of forgiveness might be rich and joy deeper still. Oh God, we pray all this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.